you know, if I had to come up with a definition, maybe for your audience kind of on the spot, I would think more along the lines of like the best version of yourself you can obtain at this moment in time. And that to me would kind of, um, that would really like exemplify excellence. ready to rock and roll. We're live back with another episode of the Unlock Your Excellence podcast. My buddy, Scott Groves. I'm going to have a very heavy front row dad showing on these beginning episodes, by the way, Scott. <laughs> Thanks Baby. a lot for being here. Hey, so oh, my thing, I was thinking about things. What? So when I think of Scott Groves, what do I think about like my intro, right? So obviously we have the, you're a fellow front row dad, a guy that uh, that's where we connected originally. And I think of you in this realm of like, you know, successful mortgage guy, successful coach, jujitsu master. I know you wouldn't consider yourself a master, but I just really like appreciate the jujitsu conversation that comes up when it, around you. I have, I thought of an awesome dad to two young kiddos, an above average husband, <laughs> above average. <laughs> I figured you would work in progress work right in progress. above above average is where i put you at i that's i figured you'd appreciate that but what i love like i think one of the favorite things is i've been advocating for for you uh, with vroman to get your uh retreats at front row dads just comped because i figure like without you there they're just not the same but it's because you have this incredible ability to be the life of the party and like the funniest dude in the room and within 15 seconds, you can be super serious and have people respect what you're saying. And you have great, great insights, great points, great wisdom. And that's just so rare. Usually the funny guy is just an idiot, right? Or the serious guy can never be funny. But man, you have this rare ability to do to be both literally within the snap of a fingers. And I really I, I think that's super awesome. And I envy that about you, man. So I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you, man. I'm excited to be on the Unlock Your Excellence like inaugural tour. You're on, yes, you're on the you're on the opening tour. How would how would Scott Groves define excellence? I want to kick off there before we dive into your story a little bit. Man, excellence is a tough word, right? Because a lot of times I think people associate excellence with like perfect, and we're, we're just not going to hit perfect, right? Like uh, I currently live in Henderson, Nevada, so from time to time I'll go down to the strip, uh, to, to the Las Vegas strip. And the Las Vegas strip is a very humbling place because there will always be somebody better looking, richer, nicer watch, playing with bigger chips, more successful, you know, hotter spouse, wh whatever, you know, like this is just like, it's, it's just like a showcase of people's wealth and talented talents and excess. So when you look at that, it's like, you can get into the comparison game really fast. So I think maybe with excellence, you know, I think it's a great question. I think with excellence is like, hey, what what is the best version of yourself wherever you're currently at and where you could be? And if you're hitting that best version of yourself, you're probably obtaining excellence, right? Like there's certain area where I'd say, hey, we're putting in excellent effort, but maybe we haven't reached excellence yet. And then there'd be other points in my life where I'm like, man, you know, if I'm being honest, Mike, I'm really dropping the ball here and I'm nowhere near excellent. So, you know, if I had to come up with a definition, maybe for your audience kind of on the spot, I would think more along the lines of like the best version of yourself you can obtain at this moment in time. And that to me would kind of, um, 
that would really like exemplify excellence. You know, I see you've got a picture of Kobe Bryant behind you who born and raised in Los Angeles for the first 42 years of my life. I was crushed when he died. You know, we went down mm -hmm. to his memorial and uh, he's one of the few celebrities that's died that I like cried over. And when you saw Kobe Bryant play, it was like every single game he did something where you're like, I, I can't even believe that it just happened with a basketball. I can't believe somebody contorted their body that way or hit that shot or drove that ball. And I think it's because in everything that guy did around the sport of basketball, he was, he was exemplifying excellence. And so yeah. that's, that's my long-winded definition to your to your easy question. Quote oh, man, it's not an easy question. I love it, though. I, do you think that um, – because I think of, like, all these different buckets that we have in our life, right? Like, and, you know, you have your health, you have your business, you have your family, you have all these different buckets, and you want to be excellent in all of them. But a lot of times we find ourselves, like, if – one is going really, really well. A lot of times the other one is, is way down here and they're kind of always out of balance. Is there a perfect like spectrum of like equilibrium where they can all be about the same or, or are things like always just, or should we just expect things to always be out of balance? Do you ever think about that? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I can equate everything to like a scene in a movie. Cause I'm like a big movie junkie. So I don't know if you remember, uh, I think it was Die Hard 3 with Samuel L. Jackson. And they're, they're being put through this like gauntlet of tests. And there's this one test where they end up at a, um, they end up at the water fountain and they're like, you have two buckets, one's like, or, you know, two, two jars or, or water jugs or whatever. One's like a gallon and one's three gallons or one's three gallons and one's four gallons or something like that. And you have to get exactly two gallons in one of the buckets, which is not a two gallon bucket. And so they're pouring water back and forth and whatnot. It's like this little mental teaser. And what's funny is in the movie, they don't actually tell you how to solve the problem. So years later, I had to look it up on the internet. I'm like, wait a minute. So if you pour the one gallon into the three gallon and then the two gallon, anyway. Um, so they don't tell you how to solve it in the movie. But I, I kind of think of, of life, in my life, it's like that, but with three buckets. And in my mind, the three buckets are uh, health and uh you know, wealth and business, and then like family and personal relationships. And mm -hmm. I'm sure a better man out there than me, who's been able to really level off or top off all three of those buckets at once, but I can't. I mean, the reality is if I'm all in on focusing on my family and I'm getting to jujitsu four, five, six, seven times a week, which is like a new passion of mine, I'm definitely no master. I'm just, I'm just recently a blue belt, which means I like I kind of know how to get my ass kicked without um, hurting myself. So I've got like 10 more years before I would call myself anywhere near a master. But, um, you know, if I'm doing jujitsu six times a week and I'm, I'm, I'm leaving work by four o'clock to take the kids to jujitsu and I'm doing trail life with my son in the evenings and I'm doing date night with my wife, inevitably, because just like you, I'm in a sales profession, inevitably things are going to fall by the wayside, right? Calls mm. are going to go a couple extra hours without being returned and business starts to taper off. Or if I'm like all in on business and I'm leading my team and I'm building new systems and I'm trying to you know, train the VA to answer the phone in those moments that I'm with my family, well then inevitably you start skipping some workouts or you know, date night gets postponed several weeks, which is where my wife and I have been. Uh, her mom's in town this week, so we're actually gonna finally be able to get away on a date night. Uh, so I feel like for me, it's this kind of like that scene in the, in, in the movie where they're like siphoning water back and forth to find that perfect balance of two gallons. Well, just now add a third bucket to that scene in the movie 
and assume that there's no mathematical way to get to a perfect two gallons, you're just kind of always shuffling water back and forth. And, you know, it can be a little frustrating. Uh, I have not found a way to fill all three buckets at once, but I think that journey is probably just what life's about. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think the other thing is I think everybody's capacity for those buckets are a little bit different too. Like this seems like there's some guys that can really get the levels of their buckets to use your analogy. Like they're pretty high most of the time. And then there's guys like me who like one bucket's kind of full, the other bucket's okay. And then while the third one's empty, like there's nothing in it at all. Like I'm just all over the place. It's all, I'm all in or I'm all out. So, um, Man, I want to rewind the clock a little bit. I, I think I was I was just talking to Ali Jafarian, another uh, front row dad brother of ours, and we were talking about this concept of like when we meet somebody, we know them from that point of their life forward. We don't know anything about them in any previous life, and we in ourselves. I'm always recreating every time I meet somebody new. It's like I'm in a new life of myself. They don't know, you know. Like the best example, like I've been growing my hair out, right? So I haven't had a haircut since April 22nd. So anybody that's known me in this new life of, of long hair, Mike, didn't know that I used to have short hair. Like, so I, I think of that with guys like you, where I've known you for probably three years now, but I don't know, you've had a lot more, I mean, you're, you're not just three years old, right? You've had a lot more, you were, you know, you, you had a previous life that Mike Higgins never knew. And, uh, I wanted to just quick rewind that a little bit and maybe take three, four, five minutes and, and, and give us the, the birth tell now story. And then we can just kind of see where it goes, but I'm, I'm curious to learn more about your story and kind of what, uh, what Scott Groves was like growing up and what, how you got to where you are today. What, what, and who made you who you are? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that can be an all encompassing long 12 hour podcast episode. So, you know, we start on a cold windy night in, uh, probably the summer of 1978. My parents decided to have sex. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's going way, way far back born March 79, but, uh, no, you know, growing up, I was, um, I was, I don't know. I'm a weird dichotomy, man, where it's like some things come really easy for me. Like school came really easy for me. Uh, so I didn't really have to work that hard mm. and I could always talk my way into the A or I could like do the extra credit or I could do the project the night before it was due, which was kind of cool. And my parents thought I was pretty smart and my teachers thought I was pretty smart. But, you know, if I'm being honest, it, it kind of gave me the ability to be lazy in school. You know, I did. I didn't go to college. You know, I, my parents were not college graduates or they had never attended college. So they didn't really know like what direction to give me. I think they just assume like, oh, Scott's smart. He gets A's, he'll go to college. And so, you know, coming up on my senior year, I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do. I, this recruiter came on on uh, onto the high school campus and I'm like, well, I guess I'll take this ASVAB test thing and sign up for the military because I really ain't got shit going on. And I don't want to live with my parents after I graduate high school. You know, they're, they're great people, but like we never really had a lot of those conversations about direction. Um, and so in some ways I'm like, oh, school and kind of this like natural proclivity for like being able to tell a story or stand up and give a, a talk or, or, you know, do the work last minute in some ways made me a little lazy on the academic front. Uh, and luckily to the credit of my parents, they kept me super busy with, even though I wasn't any type of star athlete in any sport, it's like, oh, well, you're always going to be playing a sport or doing something. And you're always going to be doing Boy Scouts or doing something. 
and you're always going to be trying to work towards some other goal. And you, you know, you get, you got to do chores around the house and you got to go to work with dad sometimes and wash the U-Haul trucks and things like that. So it was weird because the, the, the tendency to do well in school, I think in some very strange ways made me lazy. Mm. Uh, and then the, the constant activity and doing and the filling my calendar, I think made me a really hard worker. And then same thing happens in the army, right? So I leave for the army and it's like, I was turned out kind of a good leader of people. So very early in my career in the military, pre 9-11. So it's not like I was getting shot at, thank God. Um, but pre 9-11, I was in the army and like pretty good leader. So they're like, oh, put Scott in charge or something. And you know, he'll figure it out. And sure enough, we always figured it out, which then kind of gave us the bad habit that like my squad could stay up till two in the morning drinking every day. And as long as we showed up at 6am and ran five miles and then did our work during the day, we kind of got a lot away with a lot, you know? Um, so then I get out of the army pre 9-11, uh, get into banking, start doing home loans, and really just for the last 22 years now, which is kind of crazy to say out loud, just filling my calendar with, Hey, how can we do more production, add more value, help more clients, talk to more realtors, build a better mousetrap. Oh, that's not enough. Um, how can I build a coaching business based on this success in the mortgage industry? Oh, well, coaching business isn't good enough. I got to write a book if I want to be a real coach and so then write a book. And then it's like, well, COVID hit and there ain't a whole lot to do. So let's find somebody who I can take private jujitsu lessons through um, and then, uh, I also going to start a podcast on the edge podcast. Cause that'll be fun. So it, it's kind of weird. Cause you know, I used to think that my core value was like being the best and making the most money and being the one, the number one mortgage guy in the world. And when I, as I get older, I realize that I'm like, no one, I don't think I want to work that hard in one arena, um, and be the 500 million or the $1 billion producer. I'm like, well, you can make a really good living taking care of a core group of realtors and clients and doing a hundred million a year in business and leaving time in the evening and the weekends to do this other stuff, family, friends, podcasts, jujitsu, coaching business. And so I don't know. I mean, it's kind of weird because this ability to be a little lazy in some things, but then work really hard and put in effort over here on this side. Um, that's kind of been the story of my life. And the reality is, if I was like super obsessive and I would just said, Hey, I got no time for podcast interviews with Mike. I'm not going to be part of front row dads. I'm not going to have a podcast. I'm not going to have a coaching business. I'm just all in all the time on mortgage. Um, and I work 80 hours a week in that. I think I'd be one, a miserable person. Uh, and two, the only thing I would be able to, you know, have to show for it is like more money and probably a divorce and some estranged kids. Um, some of my realtors would probably appreciate that because maybe I'd be a better loan officer. Uh, but yeah, it, it's weird. Like my life's just kind of been this ebb and flow of like trying a lot of different stuff in my adult life, always having this core focus of mortgage, of course. Uh, and yeah, that's where I stand today. So we have a very successful mortgage business that's run by my partner, Dallas. She's amazing. She's really taken the reins on that business. Uh, I've got a great operations manager and COO that helped me run the coaching business. I've got an amazing wife that helps me run the family here. I've got a great marketing guy who helps me run the podcast. So it's like, at this point in my life, I've surrounded myself with really good people um, to kind of offset my deficiencies in these areas where I get a little distracted or I need some some lazy time. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's really weird how my life has progressed. You 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 could have given me a million guesses when I was a teenager, and there's no way I would have thought I ended up here. It sounds like you've <clears throat> you've gotten smart in the fact of surrounding yourself with people who kind of are not lazy in your lazy zones potentially. <laughs> Um, yep. 
you know, I've, I've struggled with that personally myself early on. Like I, I grew up as an only child and had a lot of things that were given to me for lack of a better term. Like I didn't have to work very hard for anything. I graduated with 40 kids in my class. It wasn't very hard to be in the top 10 for it. Right. And I, it wasn't very hard to be one of the star athletes. I always say like, I was very good at getting to 85% good at something like good enough to be above way above average. But I'd never I was always too lazy to get to like 92%. I don't think 100% is ever is ever attainable in anything because we're always going to move the target down further and further and further. But that 85 to 92 gap is really, really tough for me. And I found myself I'm 34 now find myself in my early 30s being like, dang, I really need to figure out how to get some work ethic going because it shows up in other parts of my life. So I'm curious as that for context, what were some early like life lessons that you had or who were some early mentors that really helped you kind of shift that? Because now, I mean, like you said, you've, you've built a powerhouse mortgage company. You've built a really awesome coaching business. You're a great dad again, above average husband, right? <laughs> so like what, what were some early life, life lessons that you learned, or maybe it was military or, or who were some early mentors that kind of helped point you in the right direction? Yeah, I love that. And uh, just for clarification, like the mortgage team that we built really successful, but we plug in under our parent company, Synergy One, who's awesome. It's kind of like it's kind of like as long as we don't get them in trouble, they let us run our little franchise, our little branch. Uh, but thank which God is a big risk for them with you. Yes, but thank God for that, man. Because like I just don't have it in me to run my own company and start at night doing the accountings and the compliance, and I just like plugging in under another company and letting them do uh, that. So shout out to Synergy One. The the coaching company is mine, uh, and thanks to my operations manager, my COO, who I hired. Um, uh, they're actually having me run the business like a business, but you know, you go back to like, you mentioned mentors, my dad, when I was growing up, just, and, and I'm not, I'm not I'm really not just saying this cause he's my father. And that's kind of your first hero who you look up to, like really the hardest working dude I ever met. Like even the other fathers in our boy scout troop would be, holy shit, man. Like, you know, your dad may have some faults like we all have, but no one's ever going to insult him for lack of work ethic or put it in the effort. So I think my, my dad on the work ethic, and he was kind of like me, you know, boisterous, probably said the wrong thing sometimes, you know, made some off color jokes and whatnot. Um, but just hundred percent work ethic from him. And then, uh, met a gentleman, probably sixth grade boy scouts who ended up being my, my boy scout leader until the day I left for the army. I was an Eagle Scout. I was in the scouting program until, yeah, until I left for the army. And Bob really taught me a lot about being more of a, I would say a gentleman, right? He, mm. he would make us do pushups if we said bro or dude or sucks. Cause like, that's just not a part, you know, appropriate vernacular. Um, and so when I went to the army, I was in basic training. I'm like, this is easy, man. Bob, Bob Nims ran his boy scout troop way more strict than this army thing. Yeah. Um, so he was, he was really a, a mentor and became like a second father to me. I'm, I'm still, best friends with his son because we came all the way through scouts together and started working in finance together. Uh, so he was a mentor, you know, in, in the army, I had two or three guys. Um, Sergeant Roberts was an amazing guy that really taught me about like standards. Right. And he was a great leader and I'll never, I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but I remember when I was, when I was uh, reporting to Sergeant Roberts, he, he told us as we came into his unit, he's like, Hey man, everybody has an off day. Like it happens. Uh, you know, we have a certain standard in this unit. We have a certain this, He's like, if one day a week 
you come in and you know maybe you smell a little bit like booze or you didn't polish your boots as well as they should be or that you know i'm starting to see a little bit of a five o'clock shadow there i'll let it slip one day because everybody's allowed to have a bad day during the week especially we were in fort riley kansas we were not like on war footing you know this was not hardcore training by the time i was in fort riley kansas in the late 90s um but he set a standard he's like you have a second bad day in the same week and i'm gonna fuck you up like mm. you're you're gonna you're gonna really just hate that entire day you know and so it was like it was just setting it an interesting standard back to your idea of excellence and nobody's ever going to be 100 percent. he knew that nobody was going to be perfect 24 7 but he also let you know like if you take this a little too far and you abuse my um my understanding that we're kind of bored here and there's going to be a night where you guys go on you know go out tie one on and like you're not going to show up as pressed and dressed as you should be the next day that was fine but if you do that two days in a week you're, you're screwed um so he was a mentor and then getting into the mortgage business i've worked for some some really great leaders um and something else that stands out robert salazar he's a leader in the mortgage space i remember when i was really starting to do some serious production in like 2010 11 12 somewhere around there I was just running into a lot of problems and I was, I was an angry man. I was like, mm. I was mad at the underwriters. I was mad at the processors and we've got all these problems and we, why do we have all these problems? And, uh, and he took me aside and we went out to lunch. He's like, Hey man, there's two things. He's like, one, you're just doing a lot more business now. So the problems that the average producer will see once a year, you're now seeing once a month or once a week. So it's kind of like that. Biggie Smalls, more problem, more money, more problems, right? So he was like, he was like, this is just the challenge you're gonna have as you take on more projects and you produce more stuff and you have more relationships and you gotta get some thick skin without being angry at everybody all the time uh, or you're gonna give yourself a heart attack. He told me that and then he told me the second thing, he's like, and he's like, as the loan officer, other than the realtor, you're the highest paid person on the transaction. Yeah. Processors are making less money than you. The underwriters are making way less money than you. All the people in the transaction don't make as much combined as you make on doing that deal. So fucking man up and be the adult in the room. And like, if you're making the most money, you are responsible for having, um, you know, the most influence and staying the most calm and making the deal uh, work or don't work. And like, just be a man about it. And I was like, oh, that's the, that was like a really good life lesson of like, the more successful you get, the more problems you're going to run into and the more successful you are and the more money you get, like the more responsibility you have to be the adult in the room. Um, so that's what, you know, just a quick greatest hits of mentors. And then one last guy I would give a shout out to my buddy, Stephen Levine, older gentleman has really helped me like calm down and think about the long game for like investing, you know, financial security, making sure the family's taken care of, having all the right buckets with the trust and the life insurance and thinking through investments and trying to avoid huge drawdowns in the market. So he's just been like a great sounding board for the last 10 years in business and finance. And yeah, man, a lot, lot, of, lot of great mentors in my life. Yeah, I love, like, there's so many lessons there. Standard, when you talk about setting the standard, I, I think about one thing that uh, a mutual friend of ours, Mike Chu talks about, he talks about standards over schedule. Um, the idea that also that your drill sergeant, you know, don't, don't mess up, don't ever mess up two in a row or two in a week. You know, it's like he, he expects that excellence, but then also gives grace. And, and there's so many lessons just in that, right? Because we, 
expect excellence out of ourselves, but never give grace to ourselves. We expect excellence out of our kids and sometimes don't extend them the grace that they probably need, right? Um, I'd like to, to hone in a little bit. You said, you know, when you started doing some serious production in the mortgage space. So, you know, obviously I have a real estate background. A lot of people that are going to be tuned in here will probably have a similar background in the real estate space, whether it's investing, realtor work, some type of W-9 work. What, what changed in like 2010, 11, 12, when you were maybe not doing serious volume and then then started doing serious volume. Was it just a was it just a matter of, you know, one thing I like when I get on podcasts, people are like, oh, I went from being homeless to buying a four hundred unit apartment complex. It's like, yeah, but there was a lot of shit in the middle there that you you're not talking about, right? Like, so you can talk about doing a hundred million in business right now, but it wasn't always that. So was there like a, a specific catalyst for you or a, a specific mentor in your life or a book that you read or something like? take us back to that time. And like, what was the, what was the catalyst for the serious business that started? Because again, long winded question, I apologize, but you know, money's not the most important thing in the world, but it provides quite a bit of options for everything else in your life. So right. it's pretty important. Yeah. And I would say a couple things, you know, there's probably some overlapping circles on the Venn diagram of where a lot of that success came from. Um, one, uh, let's not kid ourselves. I got lucky, right? Like I was, I was born and raised in an area, you know, Eagle Rock, California, Glendale, Burbank, kind of this east side of the Los Angeles city area where, you know, Zillow and Redfin had that as like the hottest market in the country for three years straight. So there was a little bit of just pure luck box where like I was a local, I, I had worked really hard to, to meet realtors in the area. You know, I sat in-house at a real estate office and it's like one of those things where it's like, well, the more you prospect and the more you lead generate, the luckier you get. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of lead generation and prospecting, which I ended up writing the book, Lead 61 Days to Double Your Pay. Um, and that was part of it, but also it was that effort combined with the luck of being in an amazing area where property values were rising rapidly. I had some local connections to the community. And then frankly, there wasn't a realtor in town I couldn't call and be like, hey, like, I know you're at that Dillbeck office on the corner of so-and-so. Uh, do you like that coffee shop across the street? And I'm like, oh, how do you know that coffee shop across the street? I'm like, oh, I was born and raised here. My parents went to Franklin High School. You know, I went to Glendale, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I just immediately had that local connection, right? And despite what everybody's trying to do with iBuyers and Zillow this and open door that and open listing this, like real estate is still hyper-local. So when I can make those calls, and be somebody local, I, I got a lot of at-bats that maybe my experience level or my intelligence level or whatever didn't deserve. So it was like good market forces, great location on accident just because of where I was born and raised, extremely hard work and prospecting. Um, and then, you know, it's one of those things where they say like youth is wasted on the young. I'm like, man, why didn't I discover like uh, personal improvement books and Tony Robbins seminars and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why did I discover this stuff when I was 22 instead of 32? Because mm -hmm. if I would have had a head start in my 20s with what I learned in my 30s and now in my 40s, no offense, Mike, but we wouldn't be talking because I'd be sitting in my- Do you, remember, do you remember the first personal development book that you read or the first like uh, encounter that you had with some personal growth or something that stands out? 
So I vaguely remember having a set of like cassette tapes that somebody gave me as like either a giveaway or a family member had, you know, paid the $79.99 on Time Life to get the, I don't remember if it was Tony Robbins or Jim Rohn or who it was, but it was, it was somebody in that realm of like unleash the power within type cassette tapes. And I remember, um, this would probably be, yeah, 2010, 11 or somewhere. So I, I imagine cassette tapes weren't even coming in the car anymore. They'd already moved on to CD players. So I think I had like a cassette player or something like an old boom box. I remember listening to those. Um, and then I remember finding, um, who's it? Dan Kennedy, the mm -hmm. no BS, you know, he has this whole series of books, the no BS, this, the no BS, that, and some of them were written like back in the seventies and you could only get them in like PDF form. So I remember finding those. Uh, and then shortly after that, I want to say, I want to say, I probably read, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look up the, the release date for the compound effect. Mm. Um, because I remember somewhere in the mid, uh, in the mid two thousands, I, or like 2014, 15, somewhere in there, I was really like really enamored with Darren Hardy and kind yeah. of his story. Okay. It came out in 2010. So yeah. The, so the you read it right away. Probably, yeah, it's somewhere around 2010, 2011. I was like, whoa, this dude is sharp. And yeah. then, you know, there wasn't as much social media back then, but I remember probably subscribing to his newsletter and then he bought Entrepreneur Magazine and then he wrote a follow-up book called The Entrepreneur Roller Coaster, which I went to as like, 500 person release event for two days where they like went through the book chapter by chapter with you. So I remember that really beginning the journey. And then our mutual friend, Hal Elrod, probably nine years ago, um, I had a buddy that was going through a divorce, ugly divorce. Um, like, like, like his wife abused him divorce. It was pretty gross. Um, and I remember Googling, this is the craziest shit. I remember Googling Tony Robbins like event this weekend, Southern California and up pops Hal Elrod's face. He's doing like his first ever event. He's like, it's Hal Elrod. We're having our first event in San Diego, the miracle morning, blah, 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 blah. Come to this event. And at that event, I met John Roman, mentor of ours, John Berghoff, um, John Israel, all the Johns, Hal Elrod, a bunch of people I'm still friends with, Josh Painter, Justin Grable, ton of people that I'm in business with or have become lifelong friends or that have become mentors. And I remember going to that event and like the first half a day, I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever been to. And then after lunch, Roman came out, nailed it. Like people started to get into character and into like where they needed to be to get out of that event, what it could be. And that was probably the first live event I went to. I was like, oh, this shit's going to change my life. Hmm. Like this is going to make me such a better person. Um, and then, you know, it's just been a journey since then. And I'll be honest, we're recording this in what, November of 2022. The market is making me rethink all that. You know, we are getting kicked in the teeth in the mortgage market, yeah. in production, yep. in frustration of our realtors and our clients. So all the cool stuff I just said that, you know, makes me super confident and feel like I'm successful. I'm second guessing it all because of market forces that are outside of my control. But, you know, just trying to get things going. Probably need to reread The Compound Effect. I was just going to ask you, you, you mentioned that book right away. And one of the things that I, that came up for me is like, what, what, uh, what's your top hits, maybe top three or, or what book most impacted? Is that one of the ones that has most impacted your life from the time that you read it? Yeah. Compact compound effect, like probably most, most prolific in my mind. 
Um, the and then the next two books that like stick out pretty pretty dramatically. Uh, one is um, is Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. Yeah. Probably the best, like the best sales book and sales and negotiation book ever written. Um, and then another one that the uh, another one that sticks out, and I'm going to get some flack for this is uh, The Millionaire Real Estate by Gary Keller. Yeah. Like it blows my fucking mind. Excuse my language. You've now gotten demonetized on YouTube. Um, it blows my mind how many people are realtors for years, many of which work at Keller Williams and never have read the definitive piece of work on how to make a million dollars as a real estate agent. Like if I grab my, my copy off the shelf here, you would see it's like tabbed and highlighted and whatnot because there's so many corollaries in how you build a successful real estate business to how you build a successful mortgage business and I, it, it just blows my mind there's like the playbook right there for agents on hey here's your i can't remember 36 point touch you know per yeah. client and, and it's, it's timeless it's timeless it's like timeless. like you know substitute the postcards for facebook message whatever Correct. you know whatever you got to do to update it but it just it blows my mind that more people have not read that book if you're in any type of sales or eat what you kill type profession. So yeah, I'd say those three books, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent Never Split the Difference and The Compound Effect, really, really important in my kind of career development. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that comes up that I, I that is very evident in your path, right, is, is just this relationships. You talked to, you know, early relationships, relationships with Hal and, and John and John and John, um, which led to more relationships. So I mean that, and then even your, you said in your success with being a, with being an early, like when you started doing serious business, it was your relationships because you were boots on the ground. You were right there. You were, you were belly to belly, so to speak with the, um, with the agents that you were working with. I love that you also said that you got lucky because I get yeah. so annoyed when people talk about like everything, you know, the book outliers, right? It's like you, you talk about, yes, you create your own luck, but Bill Gates wouldn't be Bill Gates if he wasn't a mile away from a college that had the only coding computer in the entire world that allowed him to do what he what he did, right? You wouldn't have been, you potentially wouldn't have been who you are if you wouldn't have been on that corner by that coffee shop and known those realtors, right? Because, or right. you've been in the right market. So I love, you know, that you, you talked about luck because it is part of the equation whether people like it or not i think it's just yeah. it's contrarian to talk about it though and you know, you know it's funny. you're the I'm contrarian like, master <laughs> I, I am a big contrarian like i'm i'm a pretty big libertarian so i can find a million things i hated about trump and a million things i hated about obama and one of the things that um one of the things they really and I, to be clear i didn't vote for obama either time but one of the things that the republicans really latched on to is when he said this, like, you didn't build that, you know, I, I can't remember if it was uh, in the State of the Union or whatnot, but he basically said you didn't build that. And then he went on to talk about the infrastructure because he was I think he was criticizing tech companies or something that like, hey, that's great that we have big success stories like Amazon, but they use our public infrastructure and our airports and all mm -hmm. the stuff that's funded by tax dollars. And ironically, even though that became the big rallying point of like, libertarians and republicans will be like oh can you believe this obama guy he doesn't think i didn't build my own business it's like well you didn't like you know i i wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for the fact that fannie mae and freddie mac which are basically government sponsored entities buy all the mortgages in the country right like amazon wouldn't exist if there wasn't uh roads to get their product to the end delivery uh situation to pay for those products so it's like uh, that's one of the things that he said where i'm like hey we have to admit 
we have to admit in our life, like, where did we get a little bit lucky? Um, and where did stuff completely outside of our control influence our success or just our ability to do, uh, to do the job. Right. And so I, I always try to give a little bit of a, a nod of the hat to like the luck and the, just like, yeah, just the dumb luck of like where I was born, who I knew, how hard my dad worked, how hard I decided to work. And, um, you know, some of that's innate, I guess, but some of it's just lucky circumstance. It's a little yeah, bit it doesn't make you any less, character. doesn't make you any less successful. It doesn't make you any, you know, like doesn't take any zeros out of your bank account at the end of the day to just be like, <laughs> right. Hey, I, yeah, I hit a lucky, a lucky streak. I mean, you know, right. there's a lot of realtors and mortgage folks that, uh, have hit a lucky streak in the last, you know, let's say seven, eight years. Right. And they're like, how have you been so successful? And they can like lay out their blueprint of what everybody else done. But the matter of fact is, is like, well, when rates are two and a half percent, there's a shit ton of people that want to refinance their houses. Right. And want to buy and want to, like, you can basically, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. So totally, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the real estate. I've got a, uh, I've got a friend who I, I've got a very close friend who might not be as close as he used to be because I have to open my big mouth. But, you know, he was part of a real estate agency where like during the good times, I, I, I mean, man, when I say it was obnoxious, it was obnoxious. Like our team is so successful and so, you know, in tune with the local area and, you know, our, our negotiation skills are so amazing that we got this property sold for 250,000 over, over list price. We got it sold 300,000 over list price. We sold this house $172,000 over list price. And I always thought like three things. I'm like, one way to make the buyer feel like an ass. Cause you're putting this out there on Instagram and Facebook. And you're basically saying we screwed the buyer to make sure we got the <laughs> highest price in the market for our seller. Right. Uh, number two, um, just seemed like a tacky type of, um, of solicitation to me because it's like well does that mean you like intentionally underpriced the property to where the market was so you could advertise this like how much we got over the list price and then number three i was like hey be careful with that kind of marketing because all markets are cyclical so now you look at his instagram page and it's like price improvement of seventy two thousand dollars price improvement of fifty thousand dollars i'm like improvement for who it's not right. an improvement for the seller yeah right. okay cool the price is lower, but what happened to this amazing local knowledge and this, and I was giving him, I was giving him grief about this. I'm like, dude, what happened to your amazing negotiation skills? You can't negotiate like at least the list price anymore, much less a hundred thousand we're asking. Do you think maybe the like verbose, like gloating for the last seven years, do you think maybe that was just market forces and not your insane local market knowledge? Because that insane local market knowledge should have gotten better over time, not worse. Right. Like you should be dropping prices now, unless maybe it's just the market. Like in some ways, all of us are uh, a victim or a uh, success story based on what the market's doing. Now, of course, like I said, the more you prospect, the more you lead generate, the luckier you can get because there's millionaires and billionaires minted in every downturn. There's plenty of realtors and loan officers you and I know that are, you know, that have done great in high interest rate environments, low interest rate environments. So obviously work plays way into it, but no, let's not kid ourselves that like the market doesn't have a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I, <laughs> I just had this thought, like we could totally do a full podcast on annoying things that realtors do or post <laughs> on, on social media. That yeah. would be, a complete hit because one of my favorite things is when they 
it's it's the obligatory like congratulations to my sellers post and it's like that's just a way to say i did i sold another house and i want to make sure everybody knows that i sold another house right i get it man like tell and i've done it and i've done it so i can make fun of it because i've done it totally and lenders are just as bad lenders will like put up these posts that are like like um uh, the the Federal Reserve just raised the overnight rate by a quarter of a percent, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, hey, just for context, guys, none of your consumers know what that means. Like, no one knows <laughs> what the Fed funds overnight rate is or what it affects. So, like, how about you tell a story about how you helped a client and how a scenario. And this is what I tell my coaching clients. I'm like, you know, uh, uh, facts tell and stories sell. Yeah. So lenders are just as bad as um, as realtors where you know, a year ago, it was very hard to close a deal quickly because everybody and their brother was refinancing. The appraisers were like tapped out on orders. And now a year later, when there's not nearly as many deals in the market, I see these loan officers posting, yeah, close this loan in 14 days because that's what we do. We're so Because it's your it's only like, loan for the last 14 yeah, days. When, when, when you and your company only have two loans in the pipeline, it's way easy to close them fast. So it's like, yeah, this is what we do. We close in 14 days. I was like, now, you make that post two years ago when everybody and their brother was refinancing and the market was completely like out of whack on timeframes. All right, now I'm a little impressed. But in 2022, don't tell me how fast you're closing loans. That doesn't matter. So anyway, yeah, no, we, I, should, we should do a whole episode on silly stuff that uh, realtors and loan officers uh, put on social media. It would be epic. And there would be an end, unending amount of content that could come up for it. Speaking of it's 2022... I did want to touch before we, you know, wrap up totally. I did want to touch a little bit about on current events because I go, you know, um, I think I, I, I go to Twitter and then Scott Groves Facebook feed to get my news these days. But I, I wanted to tie it back maybe to like you were you were talking about your scouting days, you know, and Bob, I believe, was the, the mentor you had and said, hey, you know, if whatever, I'll make you do 10 push ups. And the thing that I thought of immediately was like when I'm coaching our basketball team or whatever, it's like I could never make a kid do 10 push-ups these days because they would start crying and they would get mad. And the, you know what I mean? Like making them. So how has, how have you seen things change in our current events like since you were young to where you are now? And also like what's your overall hot take on like how it how are specifically maybe with our younger generation because um like and in, in how they're coming up and what do you think that's going to do for us in the future because and, and i i know that this could be a three hour like and i apologize yeah. for the loaded question towards the end of yeah. the podcast but i think it has some context for people because like we're going to be shifting into a completely different new generation you know over and over and it's like how how do we manage that how do we live in a in a different society potentially i i would say okay i'll use this example there's three institutions you know uh wrestling in high school uh boy scouts my entire life and the army right out of right out of high school three institutions that i'm very proud i was part of were super super instrumental in in my growth as a human being as a man and I don't want my son anywhere near any of those three institutions. Hmm. There's, I, I will, I will drive Uber through the middle of the night to make sure that my kids don't have to go to public school, either in LA or in 
uh, Las Vegas, where we have houses, 0% chance my kids are going to public school, even if I have to sell a kidney. Um, so that's not going to happen. Uh, Boy Scouts has basically got sued out of existence yeah. to where, you know, it's gone super woke. It's now co-ed. It's called The Scouts. You know, in certain states, you can't take the kids out on certain type of outings or certain type of shooting events or whatever. It's just, it's basically been castrated. And then even the military has gone super woke, right? And so like, these are, these are things that were like instrumental to my growth as a human being. And I don't want my kids anywhere near them. And so we have our son um, enrolled in trail life, which is kind of an interesting experiment for us because trail life is, uh, is very uh, religious centric. They're all part of the ministry of whatever Christian based church they're attached to. And, you know, our family has kind of a complicated history with religion and uh, not quite sure what we believe. And my wife and I grew up in very different settings religiously, uh, both with religious religion as part of our life, but like very, very different angles. And that could be a whole nother episode. Um, but uh, this will come full circle. So when we're, when we're at trail life, I'm now like one of the, the leaders for the like five, six and seven year olds they are called woodlands or five and six year olds, six and seven year olds. And I don't think it's as different as we think it is because with these little kids, which, you know, six year olds, they shouldn't have called them like the foxes, which is what they call the little, the little patrol. They should have called them the squirrels. Cause they're just like, they're all, you can't keep them concentrated. And every Monday night from 630 to eight, we do our little meeting. And when they're not paying attention, I make them do pushups. I like five pushups, go run to the fence, go. And I'm like, I'm just trying to wear them out when they can't get focused. And the first time I did it, a bunch of the other men in the room kind of looked at me like, uh, is, uh, I'm not sure if we're supposed to be doing this. And, and now all of the parents are like, yeah, Scott, make them do pushups. Right. Um, and so it's like, you know, we, we're just, we're just trying to grow these young boys into like boys into like focus young and there's no better way to focus young men that have no focus than make them do physical activity. hundred percent. So, um, <laughs> there's this one kid in our, in our, uh, patrol, his name is Maverick. Dude, this six-year-old, he can knock out like 20 real pushups. Legit pushups? Legit. Like, I mean, back is straight and I'm like my son's doing a great job. The other kids are trying hard, but this kid Maverick, he's going to be a triathlete, bro. He's like, a gecko, <laughs> like knocking them out. And I'm, I'm so impressed. So I guess my answer would be, um, yes, things have changes changed. Um, but I think that there's a lot more people that want for their family, for their friends, for their own life. They want some more traditional values, whatever that means. Um, they want more of, you know, plug in whatever is important to you and your family. And it's out there. Uh, yeah. We just have to accept that some of these legacy institutions that have been castrated or bastardized or whatever word we want to use, they just kind of have to die or they have to be abandoned or we have to set up a dual structure society where it's like, cool, if Boy Scouts are for you and you want to have, you know, I, I was having this argument with a girlfriend of mine. She's like, oh, you don't understand. You know, Boy Scouts should be inclusive of, of women and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, look, I won't use her name, but I'm like, look, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I grew up, this was my entire life for like 10 years. And there was certain conversations that happen with men in these settings of meetings and campouts and campfires and round tables and stuff. There were conversations that happened that needed to happen for my development as a human being that simply don't happen if they're women or if there are right. women around. And so, you know, I think we're just, we're kind of going into this dual society structure where you have to seek out the things that are important to you. And, and the reality is, I think there is a, a lot of hunger for more of that old school, hey, do push-ups, be disciplined, 
it's okay to use like physical punishment or physical fitness is a little bit of corporal punishment. Now I'm not smacking the kids on the back of the head or pulling out the ruler and whacking them when they don't know how to do first aid, but you know, a few push-ups never killed anybody. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't know I, if that answered your question, but I think they give it, you maybe a little bit of my insight. No, it's, it's great. And it's perfect insight. And I, I mean, I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly speaking of like whacking or the ruler. I had this social studies teacher that would give me this, like the pinch on the trap right here. Yeah. Anytime I would talk in class, he'd be like, Mr. Higgins, are we having any issues today? <laughs> Just squeeze. Yeah, squeeze bring it back, man. Squeeze. Bring it back. Um, if my kid's not doing core, core skills and the, and the teacher wants to grab him by the back of the neck, I don't care. Like, yeah, don't leave him any marks on him. Don't completely mentally abuse him. But I mean, yeah, a little bit of corporal punishment, I think, is fine. Yeah, no, I think you're right, though, because there are, it's just, men and women are just different. Like, it just is. It is what it is. And like, you, I think about to our retreats, right, when we're sitting in a group of 50 guys, like, 90% of those conversations don't happen if there's, you know, 25 guys and 25 girls in that, in that, right? right? Like, guys need other men, they say iron sharpens iron, right? Like, Guys need other guys to be able to sharpen each other with. Women need other women to sharpen each other. It's not this over here and over here. They're like, at sometimes we need each other, right? They're like, we were designed in such a way where guys need women and vice versa, but we also need each other like to have these conversations to be able to grow. And that's kind of just where this relationship comes in. And uh, it takes guys like you that kind of have a middle finger up to normal society to say it like this is how it's going to happen and then there's other people that kind of sounds like tag up tag along and totally agree and and kind of follow in your footsteps so thank you for leading the charge on that i really appreciate it i, want, I don't know if i'm leading but i'll be i'll be one of the soldiers yeah well you're leading in my book man um, thanks well i kind of want to land this plane as we're kind of winding down here um in this whole realm of excellence, you know, we talked earlier about the buckets. I love that analogy. It's really easy for me to like think about that framework. Where does someone begin with kind of let's let's say a person listening to this is like, hey, they're uh, an above average, like just like you're an above average husband, they're an above average performer in life, right? But they know they know there's a lot more kind of in one of their buckets or all of their buckets. They know that they can get it to another level. Where does a person like that start? Like where, where, where do they start today to be like, Hey, I want to, for you, you talked about reading Darren Hardy's book. That was like a catalyst for you with the knowledge that, you know, I like this concept of turning decades into days. So taking the decades of Scott Groves and turning it into the days for the listener here, like where can they begin to start moving towards their excellence? Understanding the excellence isn't perfection. Like you said, um, where, where do they begin in your eyes? Yeah, you know, this is going to sound maybe a little counterintuitive or out of left field, but I think it starts with tracking. And um, my buddy, Stephen, the the older gentleman that I mentioned, who's been a mentor of mine for like a decade, until he was like, hey, man, what do you mean you don't have a spreadsheet where you're looking at your net worth? Mm -hmm. um, and, and he's like, you don't have a budget. You don't have like, you're not tracking it somewhere. And I can tell you in about the seven years, because I, I told you my story before, like, 2009 basically went bankrupt, you know, it was a million, like a legit million dollars in debt between credit cards, negative equity, you know, upside down Corvettes, all kinds of crazy shit from the crash of 2008, 2009. I was a million dollars in debt. 
And, you know, until I got serious about having a spreadsheet on how am I paying this off? Where's the investments going? You know, we didn't, it took, it took almost eight years. So 2009 to call it 2017 to go from negative 1 million net worth to even. Hmm. And then, you know, my wife and I have gone from even, we spent 10, I spent 10 years. Uh, she came along later on in the ride. Uh, I spent 10 years paying back all that negative equity and building the business. And then we went from like negative a million to zero in eight years. Then we went from zero to like 2 million in four years hmm. because we had the spreadsheet and we had the tracking, right? Same thing with your health. Start a little spreadsheet, weigh in once a week, go get your you know annual physical, get your cholesterol numbers, your blood sugar numbers. Like if, if your health bucket is really suffering, you know, you got to look in the mirror and the data doesn't lie. If you're pre-diabetic and your sugars are out of whack and your cholesterol is out of whack and the scale's telling you something you don't want to, you can't hide from the numbers, right? And then same thing in business. It's like I have to this day, I have my little weekly connection tracker. I'm behind because I've only made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. I've only made 14 calls this week and I'm supposed to be at 20 calls by one o'clock today, but I'd rather be on this podcast with you. Um, so it's like, even for somebody that's been doing this now for 22 years, I still have my 10 relationships. I got to call a day to check in with. And if you're not doing the tracking and you're not keeping an eye on the activities you're supposed to be doing or the metrics that you need to live by, then you know, we can, we can lie to ourselves as human yeah. beings, especially men, we can lie to ourselves at a really deep level. So wherever you're suffering or you feel like you're behind, start some tracking you know, start getting the numbers down, start a spreadsheet and just look at that son of a bitch, you know, every day or once a week and be like, all right, where am I at? Where am I growing? What buckets do I need to fill in? And what, uh, what items do I need to check off the checklist to make sure that I'm moving in the direction that I want to? What's the keystone like metric that you track? Like if you had to like going, going to the Jeff Woods world, what's the one thing that you track such by doing tracking that makes everything else easier? Like what's something that you do every day? That's like your keystone. Up earlier. Getting up early. If I get up before 5.30 in the morning, I crush it. I find time for my workouts. I, I It's easier to make my calls. If I roll out of bed at 7 because I was up smoking a cigar, you know, till midnight the night before, uh, I my, I feel like my whole day shot. Like I should yeah. just take a mulligan. Um, so to me, the, the one thing is getting up before 5.30. I love it. Scott, I appreciate you more than you know, sir. And I'm so glad that we able to got some time. Where... You know, where do people, you got the podcast, the On The Edge podcast, where are, where can people get in touch with you? Like I said, yeah. I think we have, you know, real estate minded people that'll be listening to this and you have uh, one of the top coaching programs in the country for mortgage people, right? So uh, where can we find more about you? Yeah, man, everywhere, whether it's Linktree or Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, everywhere, I'm just Scott L. Groves. And depending on whether you love me or hate me, the L could stand for lover, loser, you know, whatever you want. Um, but it's Scott L as in Larry, uh, Groves and, uh, yeah. So everywhere, Linktree, Facebook, Instagram, Scott L Groves, find me there and let's keep in touch. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one. Bye everybody. Thanks. Dude.